Shut up and sit down. By all means, go for it. Have fun. Just leave me alone. People are coming together more and more and more and more as the government has been failing us more and more. I'm against being shitty to people. You can't research your way into understanding somebody. One way or another, I'd rather have the fight now. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Fight for Liberty show. Uh, we have an awesome show for you guys tonight. I'm really excited. Uh, first, I got to tell you a little bit about... Uh, something that we're doing with the Tom Queter campaign. You guys have heard me talk about him before, but right now, uh, if you donate to the campaign for the next three weeks, we're doing a couple of cool giveaways so you can get a signed meme printout of his I Run Better Than the Government. That would be signed by him and Spike Cohen if you donate $10 or more anytime in the next three weeks. So there's a link in the description uh, so you can donate to his campaign. He's running for state senate in New York and awesome guy. Uh, so go support him. Again, link is in the description below. Uh, tonight, we are talking to uh, Shoshana Weissman, uh, who has written for a bunch of different organizations, including Wall Street Journal, USA Today, WAPO, New York Post, uh, Reason, a bunch of other stuff. She works for the R Street Institute, uh, working on um, all sorts of different things, but she is their senior manager of digital media uh, and also policy stuff. She's on the board of a bunch of different organizations. So I'm just going to bring her up and let her explain her own self and stop trying to list out all these things. Shoshana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I I have to start out with the most, uh, the most obvious question. Uh, what's up with the sloth thing? Oh, um, so when I joined America Rising Pack back in 2014, we, we used a lot of GIFs. I love the GIFs. Um, and when you're looking through GIFs on the internet, there's just a lot of sloths. And at first I thought they were kind of weird, but over time I just kept seeing them. And then I eventually saw one um, uh, giving a flower to a woman, which I later learned uh, the, the hibiscus flowers are like sloth chocolate. So they were giving her chocolate. It was just Aww. the cutest thing and I fell in love. And now I'm on, um, I'm an associate fellow with the Sloth Institute because I do whatever the hell I want and no one seems to talk to me. So <laughs> that is so cool. Uh, yeah, that was the the first thing that I that I knew about you when I found you on Twitter. Like, I've been following you for a while, actually. Uh, and uh, just the first thing, it was just all the sloths. And I was like, this, this chick is hilarious. <laughs> I just love them so much. They're so sweet and so cute. I'm just such a sucker for them. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so what got you into uh, politics as a whole? Uh, when I was 14, uh, so I have a bunch of autoimmune diseases, like it's fine, but it started uh, really when I was uh, 13. I'd had some before that I later learned about, but uh, when I was 13, my endometriosis kicked in and I was just like, I couldn't go to school a lot. I was lying on the couch and you can only watch King of the Hill rerun so many times and they're great, but like it took me a lot. So then I started watching Fox News and I got really into it. Um, and that was the beginning. I'm like, oh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And now I'm doing it. And like, uh, back then I wanted to be a senator, hence Senator Shoshana on Twitter. Um, but, uh, but yeah, since then I'm, I was like, well, okay, now I've met a senator. Senators do not have the job I want to have at all. Um, and over time, it kept evolving from politics to policy through digital media through regulatory reform. And I'm like, okay, now I have the stuff I want to do. And I'm basically in my dream job that I didn't know existed and didn't really exist until I had it. So 
I'm really lucky. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, yeah, so tell me a little bit more about how you transitioned from just politics as a whole to like the policy and the writing side of it. Like what clued you into that being what you wanted to do and how did you start doing it? It's a lot easier than you would think if you put in the effort. Um, for If it's something you want to do and you put in the effort, I didn't realize that was the path I was putting myself on. But um, I've been working in politics, local level in high school and state level in high school, and then in college, national, state, all this, all different kinds of stuff. I did consulting. I interned at the NRSC. Um, I was comms director for a guy running for Congress when I was 19. Um, and then uh, on that part, I realized, okay, I hate traditional comms, but I love digital. I love that I can control it and make it work the way I want it to. And mm -hmm. then um, I've also been a member of the Federalist Society since I was um, 16. So I, when wow. I came to DC, I know I'm a giant freaking nerd. I'm not <laughs> a nerd, like it's fine, but I'm super nerdy. Um, but I like social debates because I, I learn well when people argue with each other. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, when I came to DC, I was like, oh, cool, I can go to the National FedSoc Convention. So I heard a guy called Randy Barnett, uh, who's a professor at Georgetown, talk about unenumerated rights, fell in love with unenumerated rights, decided that's my thing. A big unenumerated right is um, uh, uh, the right to earn a living, which doesn't mm. really get the protection it should, which led me to occupational licensing reform. And then I'm like, oh, I want to do this for the rest of my life. So um, that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. When I worked at the Weekly Standard, I wrote a lot about licensing. And then shortly after that, I joined our street and then got to work on it. And it just took off. And people liked the way I put stuff. Um, I seem to have a knack for it, which is a weird thing to have a knack for. But um, I'd always wanted to do it. And now, like, the people who did the work that meant that I can do this work, like, are now my friends. And I'm like, love you guys <laughs> that's been the the craziest thing about being involved in politics for me is that is how approachable most of the people that we love actually really are uh like i've had i've had multiple conversations with like justin amash or uh, spike yeah. cohen uh hannah cox uh like just all of these people that i've been following for long periods of time and been in love with. And just from having a fairly small uh, Twitter following and just being involved with campaigns and meeting people, like Justin Amash knew who I was when I walked up to him. And I was like, he, he was like, oh, David Fight, nice to meet you. And I was like, you know my name? I know, <laughs> I've had that moment with people. Ben Sass did that to me once and I was like dying because I was a huge Ben Sass fan. Mm. I was 23 and at the uh, Weekly Standard, I think it was this, the, their thousandth issue party. And I was like waiting my turn to talk to him because other people were talking to him. And he walks through them and he's like, it's so nice to finally meet you. And I'm like, Ben Sass, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Who's the, who's the person that you were the most anxious to meet? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's there's different levels of anxiety, honestly, because it depends how I met them. Sometimes I'll meet people and then realize how much I love their work after. And then kind of fangirl after knowing them. Um, I think the worst was Gorsuch. I was like dying. I was like, oh my gosh, I love your work so much. Because he takes, he, you know, he's on my side of the judiciary. He's, you know, mm -hmm. we don't always agree. But when I met him, I was like, oh my gosh. I showed him my unenumerated rights necklace. And he said, oh, you're a Ninth Amendment fan too. And I like died. I'm like died right there. I'm a, I'm a ghost now after that. Um, that was a really big moment for me because it's like, he's he's just bringing so much to the judiciary that it needs that like i didn't think was possible because it's it's fairly controversial views in a lot of cases mm -hmm. and i'm like ah oh, he's there doing it so i was just like so like 
but there's there's so many people one of my good friends clark neely um is at the cato institute and he's the guy who litigated one of the big licensing cases and i've been a huge fan of his forever and even though we're friends i'm like i'm just like oh my gosh it's clark neely like my dad's like how is clark neely like stuff like that but mm -hmm. he's just such a kind great person and there's so many people who are just incredible people but are the sweetest people morris kleiner is another one of those kinds of scholars just really really incredible people who are just marshmallows you know mm -hmm. yeah it's crazy how just genuine a lot of the people are i think we yeah. we have a benefit of uh being fans of good people not like horrible yeah. tyrants and dictators right uh so when we actually meet those people that got into this to genuinely help the world and make it a better place, like they're good people and they're nice. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's really awesome. One of the ones that will always blow me away is uh, Scott Horton, who I've been of, uh, he's uh, the, he founded antiwar.com. Oh, and okay, okay. Uh, so he's been, I've followed him for many years and reading his stuff and this people that he's helped bring up and he is really just a stoner skater bro that, that has just done a lot more research than most other people on That's foreign funny. policy and every time that i meet him or he's on a show he's been on this show uh, um as well Aww. and he's just so relatable he was on tim pool's show and they spent like 20 minutes just talking about skateboarding and it was just the right. most like humanizing thing for someone who you normally see like on Fox Business or something talking about blowing up kids overseas. Yeah. It's nice to see like the the human part of them too. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are just super down to earth and not in all cases, but most often the people doing the good work are going to be down to earth because mm -hmm. I feel like they're focused on the right things. There's exceptions for sure, but um, there's very few people who have been super unapproachable whose work I've liked, like usually they end up being nice people and it's, you know, those things don't always have to go together, but they often do. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is always going to be fun. I hope to continue to meet more of my heroes, but honestly, I've checked most of the boxes that I had this year. Uh, it's been awesome. a fun year. Uh, oh, I'm so glad. I, I finally got to meet, I saw you were hanging out with uh, Hannah Cox last weekend. I finally met her, uh, followed her for, also years it's, oh, it's so down to earth she really is we just were like hanging out having cheesecake at uh the yal convention and oh, just great. just uh making jokes about how it was coke brother funded cheesecake that's really <laughs> funny yeah she's super chill um i knew her before she was like super super twitter famous but mm. um but no she's just so down to earth and she's another person who like if you hang out with her she's just like very very normal but she has all this cool knowledge about stuff like the, the uh, country music industry, which like, it's so fascinating to hear her talk about it because so much of it, oddly enough from the country music industry relates to how politics and government works. I, I know everyone's human, but it's still kind of funny. Mm -hmm. For sure. Uh, yeah, I, I'll never never be more appreciative of just the, the community that is those of us that are trying to stop the downfall of our empire. Who's <laughs> <laughs> trying? Uh, so, so I was on your uh, your Medium page today, just doing my homework, and I found the like Supreme Court hearing database. And I don't oh, want to yeah, want to get too far into that. I'm just curious, like, what sparked the idea? And do you <laughs> normally build large databases in your free time? Is that sometimes when I feel like it? It was. Um, <laughs> I'd been talking with one of my colleagues and a friend at the Federalist Society about like 
different research that hasn't been done on the Supreme Court that could be and kind of thinking through it. And I had this idea where I'm like, what if we created a, a database of it all? Um, in part because confirmation hearings have changed so much and I'm curious how they've changed. And honestly, the big impetus was I wanted to look for mentions of unenumerated rights because I'm so passionate about protection of them. Short story is Ninth Amendment says that like that we have lots of rights, that it's not just the ones written down. Um, and then the 14th Amendment privileges or immunities clause says, hey, this is the same crap, but for the states. So we have unenumerated rights, but the Supreme Court is like, okay, we decided these rights matter, these don't, and these sort of do. And that's that's bullshit. Like, that's total bullshit. So um, I'm really passionate about full protection of all unenumerated rights. Um, and I'm not saying giving people rights, but we have rights already, like endowed by God or like whatever. I don't care what you think it is, but nature by like the earth, mm -hmm. whatever, by your mom, I don't care. Um, <laughs> but like that we have those rights and they, they're deserving of protection. But like, it was interesting because I caught something um, from years ago where, I mean, part part of the big thing was that when uh, when Bork's domination hearing happened, he said like, basically it would be no different if there was an inkblot over the Ninth Amendment, but that's crap because the Ninth Amendment is there. So um, to go from that to Gorsuch saying, when Ben Sass, who's a Ninth Amendment fan, asked mm -hmm. um, uh, Gorsuch, what does the Ninth Amendment mean? And he says, it means what it says, which is literally quoting Randy Barnett on the Ninth Amendment. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like in 30 years, we went from this to this. Like, how does that happen? So I put together the data. It took forever. I have a whole spreadsheet I saved to, for the cleaning process. Uh, Kavanaugh's and um, uh, Barrett's aren't out yet. It's ridiculous. It's been years. But I would love to get theirs in there. But every available one going back to, like, I think the 1930s, um, which is when they started having hearings, because before they're like, okay, this guy can be in the court, whatever. And then they were like, oh, maybe we should have hearings. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny, the whole history of it. But I'm like, I want to look through this. So I've had so much fun looking through the data. And um, it's funny because the American Constitution Society, which is kind of like FedSoc's partner, but it's a lot smaller and it's very liberal, has been like using the database for stuff. And I'm like, cool, whoever wants to research, like, I'm just mm -hmm. glad that this is a tool that people have now. And I'm not... I'm good with data. I'm not great with data, but I would love to see someone who really knows how to work with more files, more databases, who has some more room in their, their computer and like has maybe some more hardware than I do to take um, not just this, but all different levels of hearings, every Supreme Court hearing every like, I mean, just um, there, there's so many transcripts we could put in databases so that we aren't, but I would love to so mm -hmm. that people could find mentions of things more to figure out hey when does this come up and why so i'm just a giant nerd and obsessive and our street lets me publish stuff so i'm like hey guys can i do this they're like sure whatever and like it got a lot of attention which i was really happy about because it was something really important to me mm -hmm. um and i just do stuff like this for fun because i'm psychotic like it's great <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'll never well I'll, I'll always pick on nerds but but in a respectful way because i'm also one uh, I, I really wish that I was better with data. I don't, I don't know my way around it at all. And it's what my dad does for a living. And I've started to pay more attention because when he first switched over from just like uh, programming to data, I just like started tuning shit out. I was like, this sounds boring. I was like, you do what Chandler Bing does in Friends. Like, you're, you're a data transponster. Uh, and I just kind of discredit, not discredited it, but he was just talking about stuff that I didn't understand. And now I'm like, 
paying attention because I'm like, I need to learn this stuff because I'm doing like uh, voter rolls and stuff like that and yeah. trying to like put together CRMs for campaigns and I'm having to outsource everything that I'm doing to other people because I don't know data. It's hard. It's honestly a really hard thing to do. And I, I would love like to get for our street to get a grant to be able to do so much more with this because I think there's some real potential here. But it's also like, you know, people have to want to get this stuff. And sometimes, it, you know, interest in like availability doesn't align. Like we can't just hire people who know this stuff way better than I do to do this because I'm a freaking dork. Like that's not a reason our street can embark on a project. Like if I'm doing it in my free time and I'm like, hey, guys, can we publish this? They'll be like, yeah, sure. But um, I would love to do more here. And I think there's so much of government that's just behind a curtain and it doesn't need to be. And there's ways for us to do better. I mean, government should be doing this, but if they're not, I'm happy to do it. I just, I would like some more of this, just more ability for people to look through and understand things and find what government's mm -hmm. talking about. That shouldn't be so hard, you know? Yeah, they do this like faux transparency thing where they, all the information is out there, but it's not findable or really readable or make it doesn't have a lot of sensibility to it. Yeah. I can't tell you how many of the, the Supreme Court transcripts I had to do were in PDFs, freaking PDFs. I'm like, well, my weekend's gone. Like, I easily put 200 hours into this project. And it's like, there were so many errors. And I'm like, this, these are confirmation hearings of the freaking Supreme Court. You would think it would be in better formats or that they would get it out within five years. Not like, I mean, Kavanaugh has only been three years, but none of his transcripts are available. And I can't really use the the BGov, like the Bloomberg ones, not not even because of copyright stuff or whatever, but because they're not very good. And I don't blame Bloomberg. It's not their job to get, you know, hours and hours of transcripts perfect. They're trying to give people an idea, but it doesn't mm -hmm. work right if the data is that off. Um, and a lot of the data I have still isn't perfect, but it's good enough. Theirs is just a step below, though, and I can't use it. But yeah, um, like we should have access to this stuff. Yeah. So um, with so many topics out there, to research and study and theorize when it comes to politics. Uh, you mentioned how you uh, kind of got into occupational licensing stuff, but how have you found the the couple of issues that you've really focused on? Just usually when something sparks, like uh, Clark Neely, I, I went to a speech at Reason back in 2013, um, and I was 20 at the time, and he, he told a story about an elderly widow who he had litigated on behalf of, um, when her husband died, like she'd never had to work for herself. So she had to figure things out. Um, she wanted to be a florist, but Louisiana is the only state that makes you have an occupational license to be a florist. The only state. Um, it's bullshit. Total fucking bullshit. Um, so, yeah, it's ridiculous. So she um, she tried to go through the process, but she there's two, there were at the time two two exams. One was a written test and the other was a floral arrangement test judged by licensed florists. As you can imagine, they do not want competition. So the pass rate was lower than the Louisiana bar exams pass rate, um, which tells you everything you need to know. So um, she couldn't pass it, but a grocery hired her. Her clients loved her. It was fine until the government found out she was working. How dare an elderly widow do the only work she knows how to do and is capable of doing? Um, so uh, the government told them, like, hey, you're either going to fire her or we're going to shut you down. So they had to fire her. I don't blame the grocery. They, I admire them for hiring her in the first place. But, you know, they can't spend all their time fighting this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when she eventually did die, she was in poverty. IJ was paying her electric bill and stuff like that. It's uh, complete crap that government threw someone into poverty who didn't need to be there um, and then made sure she had nothing so that her, her um, 
pro bono law firm ended up being like, you know, uh, ended up paying her electric bill and stuff like that. It was completely ridiculous. Um, and I know it's something that affected Clark a lot, just seeing like that this is something government would do to people. But after that story, like I've retold it a million times and every time it just feels so unjust, like it makes you want to go out and find something. So after I heard that, I got really into it. And not all the stories are that, you know, enraging. I mean, none of them are really good, but they usually don't enrage you so much. But it's just like, once I realized that government was throwing people into poverty or even not letting them have basic liberty, like the right to arrange flowers um, and the arguments that that made it before court, which they weren't protecting unenumerated rights. They were saying, oh, well, the government can, they encourage the government to lie under the rational basis test. Really, the rational basis test for unenumerated rights that don't get heightened protection, although uh, the right to earn a living is genuinely supposed to have it, according to even Supreme Court precedent, like a little bit higher, even if it's not as much as fun fundamental rights, which is just something we've decided, oh, these rights matter for whatever reason. <laughs> um, usually the ones written down in the Bill of Rights and also some ones that they, for some reason, decide matter more than other rights, it's still supposed to have more protection. But the government is just encouraged to lie because rational basis means as long as this regulation is rationally related to some, you know, to some governmental interest, which can be anything. So the government was like, well, what if a bride falls on, you know, the uh, on a sharp stem or what if there's infected dirt infected with what they didn't have an answer. So it's actually encouraging government to lie. It's all crap. Um, what is and, infected dirt? Yep. Yeah, they had no explanation. Just oh, what if the dirt's infected? Which it's like it's dirt. It's all gonna. It's oh, dirt isn't good for you. Like it's no, like it's not like there's ever gonna be like clean dirt. And if there is, like what? Like, are, do, should we bleach the dirt and kill the flowers? It's all nonsense. But um, that got me really into it. So usually when I get into an issue, it's just something really sticks with me. And this had so many angles sticking with unenumerated rights. So like throwing an elderly widow into poverty to like this state only having this license that it just really clicked so usually when i get into something it's just it really hooks me in and i'm like oh this is what i'm doing for the rest of my life so <laughs> that's kind of how i get into policy not sure it's very rational but it's, it's how i get into it <laughs> <laughs> i love that uh occupational licensing has been one of the things that i think that was one of the issues that i actually had like a a political like policy minded opinion on before I got into politics. Like oh, that was cool. one of those things that I like actually like cared about that got me into, well, how do I fix that and change that? And Oh, that means I have to like run for office or support other people that are running for office. Um, and that's one of the issues that brought me towards libertarianism. Cause I heard like Gary Johnson talking about yeah. it and I was like, wait, this guy likes guns, drugs, and cares about occupational <laughs> licensing and like actually talks about it on a presidential campaign. That's something I've never heard of before. Let me check those guys out. And, uh, really six years later, I'm this. So <laughs> maybe, maybe a good thing, maybe a bad thing. We'll, we'll never know. <laughs> that's really funny. Uh, but occupational licensing for me is one of those issues that, uh, like you said, there's there's a lot of that like weird rationale behind. It's like, oh, what if what if something bad could possibly happen? Yeah. We have to we have to stop bad things from happening, which a lot of people can get behind on on a philosophical basis if they're not really paying attention to the outcomes of it. Right. Uh, 
So it was something that I focused on a lot when I ran for New York City Council because actually while I was running, uh, there was a big scandal where like four or five like elderly churro sales ladies in the subway got arrested, like like dragged out of the subway in handcuffs because they were like unlicensed uh, selling food. Churro and, dealers. And, right. Um, those, those horrible criminals. Yeah. And so naturally, like the, all of the like anti-cop and like pro like immigrant leftists, like the entire DSA like came out in droves and they had uh, like a big event protesting it. And everyone's like, ah, oh, this is horrible. And not a single freaking person was talking about the fact that they were just enforcing a law yeah. that exists. And if you don't want them to enforce the law, get rid of it. Like that's the only option. You're yeah, not just going to think about that enough. You're totally right. But people don't, the left doesn't make enough mental connection between like, we don't want this to happen. Well, this is on the book. So what do we do about it? And I don't mean it in a derogatory way towards the left. I just mean like, it's just not in the, in the current political ethos. It's getting there and it's starting to be something people are thinking about a little bit mm -hmm. more, but on the right, it's in the same way where people will be like, Oh, you know, there's no inequality. Like this stuff isn't real. But it's like, but you know that these regulations have these bad impacts on people. So aren't you thinking like, you know, don't you realize that this is going to create that injustice and create stuff like that? And we really tend to uh, talk past each other about that kind of stuff. I've actually written about this before that, that you know, we really talk past each other on those issues. Libertarians tend to be better because they kind of get both sides. But part of what's really important to me is making sure both sides understand like, hey, if you think this regulation isn't fair and I think you're right then think about how it's going to have effects on people. And then the opposite, well, you think this effect is unfair, where, well, where did it start? Um, mm -hmm. And it's a real disconnect that I think we should bridge. And I think we should be like, you know, doing the good messaging to each other to be like, hey, I know you're worried about this, but consider this kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think a, a decent chunk of that, because uh, I've, I've always been more on the conservative side of, the political spectrum, at least, you know, I grew up mostly re like Republican-ish independent. Um, but I lived in New York City for four years and, and I've spent a lot of time hanging out with like the DSA and BLM and like no new jails and like environmental activist organizations and stuff like that. So the last five or six years, I spent a lot of time hanging out with the left. And I think a chunk of them have too much of like a defeatist mentality with a lot of things. Um, and I think the right suffers from that a little bit too, uh, where they're just like, oh, that's just the way it is. And um, the right seems to be more complacent in it. Yeah. And the left is just like, oh, the system, the way that it is, is the problem. And until we get rid of all of it, like we can't just solve the problems one by one, right. which obviously as an anarchist, I, I kind of agree that like, if we just got rid of the whole government, we would solve a lot of problems. But there's stuff we can do in the meantime to make people yeah. not be put in handcuffs or lose their job because they didn't pass a test to be a florist. Yeah, That's there's incremental insane. reforms you can do. And I don't, I, I'm not big on like the everything or nothing. Surely there's times mm -hmm. when I think that has to happen because of the nature of a policy. But more often than not, like you can, you can knock something out and, and help out a lot of people. And I don't want to miss out on helping out a lot of people if we can. So, you know, getting rid of the florist license. Sure, it doesn't solve all of occupational licensing, but it would help out some real people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, letting people work across state lines, universal licensing recognition, 
getting rid of uh, good moral character clauses. There's so many things we can do that like maybe it doesn't help everyone, but it helps a lot of people and a lot is better than none. Mm -hmm. Explain good moral character clauses. So there's a lot of um, clauses, especially in occupational license, in the laws for licenses, where it says uh, you have to have good moral character or, or good moral fitness. That doesn't mean anything. There's no legal definition for it. So that means if they don't like you, they can deny the license. But more often, you know, let's say you want to be a, um, a radiologist. Um, well, um, if you've had a sex crime, you're not able to, but prostitution is a sex crime. So reformed prostitutes can't become a radiologist. And that was the case in Tennessee. There was a woman who had been a prostitute. She got back on her feet. She was living a good life. And she, um, you know, she wanted to become a radiologist. She looked into it. Thankfully, she did it before. Um, she looked into this before she had gone through schooling. She wasn't able to become one because prostitution is a sex crime and you can't, you know, be um, a radiologist with a sex crime or, you know, there was um, a good moral character, you know, it's a barbers in some cases have to have good moral character. And that means you can't have been in prison. So when they're training people to be barbers in prison, they get out and they can't be. There are states where that happened. It's just nonsense. And these provisions are just so broad that it can mean anything. I'm not even kidding you. I've had people say, well, what if your barber cuts your head off? He's not going to be a barber for long. Like if, it's, if his idea is just to, like, if we're going Edward Scissorhands here, like this is ridiculous. Like if he was going to commit murder to random people, he is probably going to do that anyway. And like being the barber thing isn't really helping. Like that's not, that's not a solvable thing. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's some real dumb stuff like that. So I'm big on like, okay, if there's a real close tie in, sure. Like, let's say, um, uh, you know, you wouldn't want pedophiles to work in school, stuff like that. Very narrow stuff. I'm totally fine with, but it has to be very narrow, direct relation. Um, and, and, and evidence-based like in that case, that makes sense. But in other cases, you might want to make sure like, okay, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Maybe a, a guy who stole a car. You don't want him working at an auto dealership. You know, little things like that. But even there, there might be room because he's probably not going to steal his own cars, you know. So mm -hmm. there's there's a lot to consider there. But um, it definitely shouldn't be like, oh, you're not allowed to do anything if you've ever been to prison. So you should be in poverty and then you'll have to steal stuff and then you'll go back to like it's, it's silly, you know. Right. And that's why we have such a reincarceration rate because and it is once you get there. out it's it's fucked yeah it's uh your your um ability to get back on your feet and to succeed to have better paying jobs to move up the ladder um to get any job too is really um i mean that's a big predictor of recidivism and it's like hey guys maybe we kind of fix this instead of um making these people feel like they have to go back to crime because they can't do anything or they can't, you know, move up and get a better paying job. A lot mm. of the people have families, you know, it's it's stuff that matters. Mm -hmm. So we have a comment. Um, my friend Elizabeth has an egg roll dealer that <laughs> uh, says makes out of her home. Be ungovernable. Always be ungovernable. I appreciate that comment. Thanks. It's funny. There's a, there's some um, uh, home-based, um, what's it called, cottage food laws that apply there. It's so dumb where you can't sell stuff out of your home, but I'm mm -hmm. all for like buying and selling, do it, you know, under the table, whatever. Maybe I shouldn't be saying it, but like, I don't care. Like it's, you know, people want to get stuff started. They'll have to like own a whole business if they go, if they grow really big. But yeah, like egg rolls are delicious. And if someone can make you some really good ones, like do that mm -hmm. without government knowing. <laughs> yeah. I think COVID definitely helped that like, um, 
become ungovernable kind of mentality grow because there were so many more regulations put on stuff like that. And, you know, restaurants were forced to just completely close or have like uh, capacity limits that were made them unprofitable. Uh, so, you know, I have a couple of friends in New York City who who basically yeah moved their restaurant into yeah. their home and started delivering under the table, uh, fully illegal. Like now, everything that they're doing is right. is completely illegal. But uh, but that's how they have to survive. They need to still pay their rent. Uh, and so uh, again, as an anarchist, I'm kind of I'm kind of enjoying this trend of like yeah, screw those regulations. But changing them, I think, is is also a, a noble cause because not everyone's going to be as uh, uh, brave as me and my friends. No, I love that. Um, also, it's funny because a lot of a lot of the things we put in place for safety just don't work, and we know they haven't worked. So then the lobbies are shocked. Like, so salons have very high infection rates. Licensed salons have extremely high rates of transmitting infections. Um, like whether it's, you know, nail infections. I once got one on my foot. I'm like, why does my foot hurt? And I'm like, oh, there's gross stuff in my foot. And it's because I had gotten a pedicure at a place that looked totally clean. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm very against uh, licensing for a lot of cosmetology type stuff. I'm very pro health inspection though. There's not that, there's not really a lot of health inspection, but we should treat it like food. Like, hey, come by if there's rats, that's a problem. If they're not like cleaning the foot tubs and stuff like that, there's a, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Um, but licensing isn't solving the problem. So during the pandemic, they were like closing salons and saying, hey, you really can't do this. And they were shocked. And I'm like, mm, you guys have known forever that licensing wasn't solving the problem. So the fact that you guys kept up the charade, like now you're seeing what happens. Um, and, you know, I'm generally not pro-government shutting down stuff. I made, I understood during the pandemic, especially when we had no idea how things worked, I understood. And knowing how, how badly... Um, uh, salons were spreading infections. I'm like, this seems like something very sensible to close them down. Over time, I'm like, oh, let them operate outside. Like, whatever. Now that we know that, that's a little bit different. But um, but at first, I'm like, they're known for spreading infection. Of course, you know, that's going to be a problem. So it's like, hey, guys, maybe if you're going to rig the system, rig it a little bit better and maybe make it at least work. Um, right. Even for, for restaurants, I felt bad for them because, you know, there were cases where people couldn't go to restaurants to buy groceries but and grocery stores were allowed to be open and there was no real logic there where it's like okay even if you don't want them serving and being around people then like let them deliver you know let stuff like that happen or let um uh you know let them sell direct groceries that's totally fine um the the regulations made no sense and it's just we enable this really idiotic system and i was hoping that maybe people would be more open to change after the salon stuff and there there is some openness but not quite in the way I had hoped and not to the extent I had hoped. So I'm like, all right, I'm still going to fight there. But um, but people should think about what works. Like health inspections work. There's There have been places in D.C. shut down for being really freaking gross. And then mm-hmm. they pop back up again and they're less gross. And I'm like, this is great. You know, yeah. I love salons. They just spread infection and people are like. <laughs> Such is life. <laughs> uh, yeah, I find the, the cosmetology license conversation is one that I've had a, probably the most because my sister is actually uh, a licensed cos- cosmetologist and so that one I've had to have the conversation and I've had it with a few other people in different fields but people a lot of times have that like well I had to go through it so you right. should have to go through it too kind of mentality um, or they uh, 
trying to be nice to my sister here, uh, but they have like kind of an inflated opinion of of how difficult their job is, and oh no, you you need to to go through all of this just to to know what I know, and it's like, uh, and I keep pointing it out to her that she was cutting hair and braiding hair like for pay for years before she started uh actually pursuing it as a career choice she was just kind of like doing bride's hair for weddings and stuff like that just like on the side uh and i was like that was illegal like you were just breaking so (laughs) many laws by doing that um and you're justifying those laws existence just for this like oh i had to go through it so you should too kind of a thing uh, which, yeah, I think is a problem with a lot of them. And then you have, like you mentioned earlier, of if you have people in that job market deciding who gets to enter that job market. Yeah, exactly. It's like a certificate of need laws for yeah. uh, healthcare. It's just a really whacked out system. Yeah, it's total crap. And also, for me, the only reason to have a license is if these conditions are met. If there's a problem that either data or like, okay, this is like an epidemic, like, so there's a problem that we can demonstrate. Um, there's there's a way that government can solve that problem. And after government has attempted to implement it, it, it solved the problem or it's you know made a lot of progress on the problem. That's the only circumstance under which I'm pro-licensing or really any regulation because too often we put in regulations, they don't work and we just keep them on the books. But mm-hmm. ego is not a reason to keep licensing. Um, that we messed up a lot of people's lives doesn't mean we should mess up everyone else's lives forever. Um, you know, I had, uh, there were two people I knew who, um, uh, my friend and I were just going off about how college was such a scam and his girlfriend and my friend were like, well, when you say that you're saying we know our college experience didn't matter and our degrees don't matter. And I'm like, they don't, you matter. Your degrees don't. And they're like, well, you're saying I don't matter. I'm like, no, you're, you're valuable because of who you are, what you've accomplished. The institution has nothing to do with it. You could have gone to community college or Yale and at community college done really great things or gone to Yale and had a crappy life. Like mm-hmm. the individual's work matters. The quality of work matters. And it's hard to see on the camera right now. I keep my apartment very dark and uh, I have a light here, but I also have a green light there because green lights reduce migraines. Again, my body's crap. It's fine. My body's just total crap though. But I have rainbow hair and I get compliments on it left and right. Politicians love it. Licensed cosmetologists love it until they find out what I'm trying to do with my work. Um, but I do my hair very well. I have a um, an expensive hair stylist because my hair is very hard to work with who's always impressed by my technique. I taught myself. I figured out the best dyes. I figured out the technique. I read about it. And I did it myself and I don't need a license to do it. I don't need a license not to burn myself. I know how my skin and hair function. I do strand tests um, when I try something new. But you learn how to work with it. And I've had licensed cosmetologists massively mess up my hair. I told them, look, you can bleach over bleach on my hair. It's fine. It's very thick. And I just, um, I do a hair mask and it's fine. I know my hair. And they didn't. So they left this dark line in my hair and I was able to cover it up. It was fine because I know what I'm doing with the dye. But um, my new uh, stylist is, is great. She knows she can bleach over bleach when I want her to do the bleach. But it's it's about technique and it's about skill and it's about figuring it out and knowing it. Like two different licensed cosmetologists. One was an idiot. One was great. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And like, it's not, it's not about the licensing. It's about people know different kinds of things, especially in cosmetology, which is so broad, different kinds of hair require different kinds of treatment. There's a lot of people who can't really take bleach well. So they'll, their hair will like break and stuff. So they have to be very delicate about it. That's not my hair. Um, some people have very sensitive skin. You can get bleach on me and I am fine, but that's not true for a lot of people. And you have mm -hmm. to know how to work with different people's hair, skin, nails, and stuff like that. But, um, a license doesn't always teach you all of that, especially when two, you know, two uh, cosmetologists licensed in D.C. had extremely different, you know, uh, abilities. And it's, um, you know, it's about the individual. It's really about what you can do with it, what you learn, what you take the time to learn um, and uh, and your expertise. Everyone's going to know different stuff, which is natural and normal. But a license doesn't solve that. A license doesn't stop infection. It doesn't stop bad hairdressers. So what's it there to do? Right. And it's crazy because you were, you were talking about um, like college doesn't matter. And I think that that's a significantly more widely accepted yeah. opinion. Right. And anyone that's really worked in any major job field knows that someone with a degree can still be a moron. Oh, like, yeah. The yeah, amount totally. of people that I've worked with that have master or like MBAs uh, that are just crap at yep. sales or business uh and then and in like other industries we applaud that kind of like self-taught ingenuity yeah. like like the the steve jobs like uh i dropped out of school and i learned it myself and i did it we applaud that in like business and technology but then we just completely forget that we have those like heroes up on a pedestal over here yeah and then we're like oh but you need to go to school to know how to do hair and we just completely ignore oh, the fact yeah. that you could be exactly the same self-educated and i'm so pro trade school i think it can be a great alternative yes. to college but i also don't think it's always necessary sometimes someone's parent knows something so it's like if they're learning all the skills from their parent maybe they don't need the license in certain cases and they can test in or that can count as apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be like a million options, but licensing only allows one option, rarely more than that. And if you think about that, like that, I'm trying to think how to explain, but that cuts out experience for veterans. A lot of veterans, their skills don't transfer. They might have 10 mm -hmm. times as many skills, but the licensing board will be like, well, you didn't do the thing we said to do, so it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And veterans get screwed over by the system. Um, you know, people who move from state to state, that's still a problem. It's getting better, but it's still a problem. People who learned in prison, the, the credentials always have trouble. There's there's a lot of different kinds of problems depending on how everything's organized. But um, but it really does come down to that, whether it's college or trade school, people learn differently. I know people who learn great in the classroom and it really works for them. I'm not that person. I can, but I much prefer reading and learning like I would skip school to read constitutional law books I failed or I didn't fail but I, I almost failed astronomy because I'm like I don't care I don't care like if I want to learn astronomy in the future it's fine but like I'm here to just get the hell out of here so I can work um mm -hmm. I worked all throughout college and I would read con law books for fun and then I got a pluses in um uh, all my con law classes in undergrad because I'm like well these are fun for me and I totally regret paying so much to go to GW it was not worth it um, it, it was worth being in DC, but I could have done it that an, another way. No one's ever asked me about my grades. There's certain industries where they will sometimes validly, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. Um, there are certain degrees that I think make sense and career paths, whatever, but like, we have to stop thinking that college is everything because a lot of times it's absolutely terrible. It doesn't produce value for anyone. And people come out and are like, well, 
now I'm starting from scratch. Why did I just do all of this? Right. And and then you also run the risk of like getting out of college, working for like three days in your industry finally and realizing this is shit. I don't like this. <laughs> like, yeah. Do something else. And now you're everything that you just did was for not. Uh, yeah. I'm, see, I'm actually it's it, most of my personality would suggest differently, but I actually prefer learning in a classroom, which I'm like one of the only one of my friends that does. I, I was was homeschooled uh, my entire uh, career and went to college and it was so much better because uh, I have a big issue with like self-determination or like uh like self-motivation sometimes especially to do boring things like school so if i have the ability to like tune out or ignore or procrastinate i will do that so if you tell me you have to be in this room doing this thing from 10 a.m to 12 a.m and then you have to do this i will actually do it and learn the things uh otherwise i'll only study what i want to study <laughs> I know what you mean, and but that's what I mean. Like, you know, you know how you learn. And I think we have to really work with that better in all parts of the school system. But even with licensing, you know, if you learn best on the job, let people do the apprenticeships to get the job. Um, if they have to be licensed and if they don't have to be licensed, you know, let's, let's, you know, not have them have to do it. Some people will want to do it, the apprenticeships because they'll find it better or they'll want to take the classes. But like, if it's not hurting anyone, if they don't, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't care. It doesn't matter. Um, and also, you know, um, licensing messes with mobility. There's a million problems that it causes. But the really, for me, what it comes down to is the only reason we should ever have a license is if it's the best regulatory solution to fix an actual problem. And sometimes lower barriers work better, like health inspections over licensing. Much lower regulatory barrier, but it, it works better. Um, not to say there's also not a lot of dumb regulations on the books regarding the health inspections, and it should be a little bit more narrowly focused. But still, you know, figuring out the right barrier. If you're worried about contractors skipping out of town on someone, I, I'm sympathetic to that because that's a problem. You don't need a license for that. You need mandatory registration for that. So mm -hmm. I'm comfortable there just figuring out those narrow solutions to real problems. Uh, the Institute for Justice has this great um, inverted pyramid of like least restrictive means of regulation. And sure, you might want licensing for doctors. For that, I'm, I'm here for it. But for um, florists, for plumbers, even electricians, um, there's some evidence that where electricians are licensed, because they're not licensed everywhere, that um, it actually increases harm because people are like, crap, the electrician is expensive. Let me try these wires myself. So there's real other problems, which is why I always mention you want to study what's happening after. Um, just because licensed electricians might be better than unlicensed ones doesn't mean that the system is going to be better than mm -hmm. a, than the lack of a system. Right. I think uh, Larry Sharp, uh, the libertarian governor candidate, both in 2018 and most likely next year. Uh, yeah, I think his his rule of thumb on that one is great because he always says, uh, if you would ask your your sibling or neighbor to do it, then it, you should need an occupational licensing. No one's asking their neighbor to give them uh, yeah. like surgery, but you know, mowing your lawn right. or cutting your hair or arranging some flowers for you that one that one's Even definitely you might have a neighbor who knows how to do that kind of stuff mm -hmm. or um you know plumbing um you know there, there's all but that's exactly it i actually think that's generally a pretty good standard again some neighbors might want to try the surgery and that doesn't justify it but you know um <laughs> uh 
I, I like the way. That I mean, hey, if you want your neighbor to cut you open and try some stuff, and it's consensual and voluntary, I'm like, hey, to I, each their own. I'm open. It's like I get why people would want it, but I just feel like you never hear of like a really good unlicensed doctor. It's like mm -hmm. it's not like you know you hear of good unlicensed people doing stuff under the table sometimes, but that person is never a doctor. When you hear about the unlicensed doctor, it's because he's just like injected something that was supposed to be Botox and isn't Botox or like messed up someone's face or body really bad. Part mm -hmm. of what I definitely what I think is if you've if you've never seen a good unlicensed person doing it, maybe we should keep that one. Um, you know, some people yeah. have really great legal knowledge. I don't need necessarily <coughs> lawyer licensing is a is a thing we have to have. But you're mm. never like, oh, this guy did a really good surgery in in, uh, in his house for me. Um, he's not licensed, and I think it's fine. Like you've never heard that story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not like a Darwinist, but there is a little bit of uh, like uh, selection or uh, natural selection there, where you know maybe yeah, like if you're willing to have your neighbor do some <laughs> surgery on you, maybe you don't need to be like reproducing anyway. Yeah, yeah, maybe we don't <laughs> want to see your children end up like like that's a problem. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Uh, but yeah, I, I will always see these, these licensing as, as some of the dumbest things that we've done and we keep doing it more and more and more. It was, it's, it's always seen as one of those, like, uh, once there's stuff on the books, it's so much harder to get rid of it. And yeah. like you're saying, it doesn't, we don't pay attention to whether or not it works. It's just there for yeah. forever. Um, and also one of the important things you mentioned the cost, but I think that the, the market would no, naturally let, uh, let people charge more if they are licensed in whatever than someone who's doing it under the table. If right? the license matters, that, that's mm -hmm. a big question. Cause if the quality is the same or if the quality they need is the same, cause you know, let's say you want, um, you want someone to cut your hair and you know, your hair is pretty average. Like it's not really, it's fickle like mine. It's, I don't, I get the Jufro all the time. Um, and my hair will flare out and it's a problem. But let's say, you know, you have a haircut and you just need a good haircut. Like you, the licensed person might charge 200, but if you only need the, the $20 haircut, then you're just going to go for that. Um, right. and then the, the licensed person might be like, ah, maybe I should charge less. No one wants my haircut because my haircuts aren't that great. So really, it does come down to skill, and skill can be a part of licensing, but it it isn't always. But so mm -hmm. so think about it that way too. Yeah, and I I think uh, since we've we've been talking about hair uh, as the example most of this, uh, I think that's one of the ones, at least here in New York, that does it kind of right because while you're in school, you are allowed to get like on the job practice. Yeah. Um. So like while my sister was in school, like they work on the floor for like two hours of their class and people get to go in and get their haircut and That's it's cool. a quarter of the price or so. Uh, you know, for me, it was like a five, actually, because they had so few men that wanted, that went in there, uh, they didn't get enough practice on men's cuts. So they actually, men's cuts are free uh, because they just, they just didn't have the ability to practice that much. Yeah. Um, but even like uh, my mom would always go in there uh, and yeah, we're talking like, a $20, $15 haircut that normally at a salon would be closer to 50 or 60. Yeah. And so you get to lower the cost barrier for people that need a haircut and don't have $50 while also giving people on the job practice. It's 
just sensible and not many industries have that kind of an ability where people get to pay less for the maybe slightly less skilled labor while the people yeah. are getting there and i think it's a it's a best of both worlds kind of solution yeah i don't think we need the license but as far as the model i like that model a lot for a lot of things mm -hmm. and i think it's a really good way to do it even my um my doctor who is amazing and I pay out of pocket for him. It's not great. I don't love paying out of pocket, but he's worth it because he's a really good doctor. He had this apprentice with him and it was great because he's asking, like, I'm trying to remember what the question was. Um, oh man, um, I think he was like, oh, why might Shoshana's estrogen levels be high? She's vegetarian. And then she, I, I thought like, I thought he was like asking me a question. And I'm like, oh, cause tofu, you know, tofu, like you have to worry about that. And he's like, I wanted her to, you know, to say, you know, figure it out. But um, but I really like the way he really involved her. Because there's ways to just have an apprentice and just half-ass it. But he mm -hmm. really wanted, you know, her to learn from it. And, um, and, you know, she has paid for her time and stuff. But I really like that kind of model where, you know, you learn from someone. I like apprenticeships. It's I know it's still a little bit guilty, but I think when it's optional or when it's part of a very necessary license, that that's, that's a really good way, especially because he's... He's an incredible doctor. And I don't think I've ever had a doctor who brought in a student like that before. But like mm -hmm. it was really cool because he's he's brilliant. He's um he just knows everything and he's good enough that when he doesn't know something, he'll he's like, let me look this up and I'll get back to you about it. Um and you just don't find doctors like that. Um and you know, licensing kind of gets that minimum standard for doctors, but it only gets that minimum standard. I've had mm -hmm. so many crappy ones, but he's oh the way he was working with her, I just loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I will, I will never really be a fan of like legal licensing, but I've, I will always pr uh, present like private licensing as an option. And uh, cause I think that there, there is definitely something to be said for uh, be, just the ease that, that comes from life when, you know, there's a seal of approval on something, even when it's not right, like the FTA's approvals are on a bunch of crappy things, but just that like the seal of approval saying like, okay, I can, I can trust this thing uh, because the whole system would go down if this was, was really bad. Um, actually, I usually use like kosher food as my, say, my yeah, favorite exactly example for that. Because uh, yeah, it works yeah, it's, great. Yeah, I don't know any people that are uh, that are kosher that are just out here like, oh my gosh, the government isn't regulating kosher food. I don't know what to eat. Oh, it's like yeah. they I all trust, trust those stamps. I mean, they would be more subject to like bribes and stuff, but I like the competing kosher symbols because I'll accept like the star K and I'll usually accept the tablet K. But if there's something where I'm like, this could be really fucked, then I won't accept the tablet K because I, I use kosher symbols, but also like, very originalist, like the Constitution, but for Torah, uh, when it comes to stuff, because I'm like, okay, there were no kosher symbols in the desert, so one who fucking cares. But two, it's like it's easier when it's there. When it's there, I, I know I like don't have to worry. But when it's not, mm -hmm. I like scan the ingredients, and I'm like, gelatin can't have this, or like, you know, um, uh, B2 vitamins. I might email the company and be like, what's the source of your B2 vitamins? Because I'm vegetarian anyway, so I want it to be all um, all plant based, or you know, at least not meat and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, kosher symbols are great and everyone knows the crappy ones. They're like, okay, the just K by itself, freaking Jello puts it on and it's like, go straight to hell Jello. You know, this comes from pigs, you pieces of shit. Like they piss me off so much, but everyone knows when you see the OU, like, oh, we're good. Like no matter what, we're good here. 
But yeah, like that system works. I think it could work for doctors, but I, I would, it would just be a long, difficult process to figure out about how to test it, how to really make sure it works. I'm open to anything, but I'm also like, I, I could see people really being fleeced by like crappy doctors. Um, and the stuff they're doing, you know, messing with people's bodies would be illegal anyway, but mm. it's like, you don't want to have that happen. A bad haircut, even like someone grazes your scalp, it's not good, but you're not going to die. But like, crappy doctors and even the the licensed crappy doctors like they can really mess you up yeah yeah i i of all of the licensing uh i will work to get rid of everything else and then medical license yeah yeah, yeah exactly uh, certificate of need laws come honestly before most of the occupational licensing reform totally. that i care about but the actual licensing is uh for the person i'm yeah i'm kind of okay yeah. with that one <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm like, we can keep this one. We can talk it over at some point if we're like so far down that line. I mean, right now I'm I'm happy that there's some opportunity to allow foreign medical school graduates to work here. Not to say that every license should transfer, but if they have if they have certain knowledge, it should it should transfer into the system and they shouldn't have to start from zero. Like there's that old joke on uh, The Office where Vikram at, is uh, at the Michael Scott Paper Company and he's proposing to his grandmother and other investors saying, you know, um, and Vikram um from his humble beginnings as a prominent surgeon in like some other country and i'm like yeah we shouldn't be taking all these people's skills and just ending them it can take 10 years become to become a licensed doctor here after they were a doctor somewhere else often mm -hmm. in places that have standards that meet ours like sure, or are higher them. yeah or higher like it's it's awful and it, we're wasting these skills while we have doctor shortages and their doctor shortage was actually designed like there's liberals who like show the system of how we we design doctor shortages and we totally like it, it's totally messed up mm -hmm. we need to start reversing that and just making it so we match residents with uh, with residencies and don't just leave them hanging that's awful and that when people move here if they have doctor skills we shouldn't force them to never be able to become a doctor unless they can waste thousands and thousands of dollars to do it. So I'm very big on like, just don't waste anyone's skills. If they're moving across state lines, across country lines, it might take some time to figure out the right way to do it. But like, we can, we can do that. We've done harder stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I will forever be grateful uh, to uh, Dan Fishman. He's a former executive director for the LP. And he, he was the person that actually in the same night he explained the healthcare and education industry to me and why it's all with the government's fault in like <laughs> between between a speech that he gave and then like another couple hours at the bar afterwards i was listening to this man talk for like six hours one night and he just explained like all of the reasons why it's the government's fault that everything uh but yeah the the doctor shortage is is almost entirely constructed and then you know we had we had nurses trying to like uh, counteract that. And then we passed laws that made it to where nurses couldn't do things without doctors yeah. present. And it is just all of this back and forth of trying to fix the problem and then having regulation mess it back up again and then trying to fix it and then having them regulate it because yeah. the goal is for the doctors to make as much money as possible. Yeah. That's it. It's really messed up. Um, like you'll see the American Medical Association lobbying against letting nurses practice independently like prescribe some basic stuff like it's nuts nurses know how to do this advanced practice nurse uh, sorry advanced i always met aprns i always forget the exact um advanced practice registered nurses there we go i always mess up the the uh, acronym because i'm always using a aprn 
But um, yeah, doctors fight it. And then like in states where we do allow APRNs to practice everything, like there's better health outcomes, there's more access to care, there's more like cheaper health care, because you don't have to pay doctors to come in and say, okay, I agree with the nurse and like walk out like that's what so many of them do. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's terrible nurses, sure, but there's also many terrible doctors. I've seen many of them firsthand. My endocrinologist, literally, I go to this guy and he does all this, all these different tests on me and it takes forever and I'm just, I'm a little burnt out from it. And then I, I come back and I'm like, ah, reading it, my progesterone was zero. My endocrinologist did not notice that something that at that time in my cycle should have been 11 was zero. That's her specialty. And this doctor's like, oh, your endocrinologist didn't notice this. So she gets through, but like she sucks and he's great and they have the same license. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really, it's not, it it doesn't mean everything. And we should, you know, be making it so I can go to a better doctor. Because if I lived in a smaller place, I wouldn't be able to say, oh, screw you. I'm going to go see this guy instead, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I want people to have that access. Like for me, realistically, I'm always going to have to live near a big city. So I have access to lots and lots of doctors. Um, but like, I'd like to be able to to go to places to um, do more telehealth, to allow more for that, to go to a nurse sometimes instead of a doctor, to like have all those different options, to go to a pharmacist instead of a nurse, you know, just like, and yeah. if someone's trained to do something, let them do it. Yeah. The fact that pharmacists can't prescribe stuff makes no sense to me. Yeah. That's their job. Like, <laughs> like that's, the, that's the thing that they know how to do. They know how it all works together and we don't give them authority. That's why I'm all for letting them um, give vaccines. And they're, so, and I think every state pharmacist can give vaccines, but there's different uh, levels. Like they might be allowed to do this one and not that one or for all of these, but for only ages five and above. And it's there's not real logic. Just let them do it all. Same for allowing them to provide over-the-counter birth control, um, tobacco cessation products, a couple of other things too. That it's just like, let them do it. Expand access here and reduce people's healthcare costs. It's, mm-hmm. it's just really simple to me. Yeah, especially those ones that, like you're saying, would reduce the overall healthcare costs. Yeah. And, or just like, societal costs in general like over the counter birth control like uh the one the thing that will never ever make sense to me is like conservatives that want to ban abortion and also have like uh abstinence only sex ed ban birth control too and it's like what do you what do you want out of this do you just want lots of uncared for and unwanted children is that the goal of this mission here as yeah exactly like i don't you know, birth control for me isn't a political issue. It's like, if someone wants it, fine, you know, let them know the consequences, let them know side effects, stuff like that, just like with any medication. But um, yeah, like if you're, if your main goal is being against abortion, and I think that can be legitimate interest, like do everything you can to stop it instead of saying, well, I also worry about the morals of birth control. And I'm like, that's not, that's not your job. Like you can totally be there, but, and you can, encourage it in your private life but that's not the role of government to say oh i don't want like these people having sex like what (laughs) yeah and that's that's really the only uh the only other alternative there if you're if you're not talking about how to do it safely uh and you're banning abortions like the only the only other thing is is abstinence and that's unrealistic for most people especially nowadays like kids in high school are, are not being abstinent it's just not a thing anymore for the most part uh and yeah it's 
I see that one as more of the just like kind of control nature that a lot of people have with yeah. their political ideals. Um, it's not even quite like authoritarianism, but it's just that the they've realized that they're like kind of the conservative side is losing a lot of the culture war and sure. they think that they can combat it with with politics and it didn't work it's never worked like neither side has ever successfully legislated people into agreeing with them yeah that's just not how life works but it, it's funny too with the uh with the abstinence thing our streets really big on harm reduction just the philosophy of like don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and it's a lesson i've had to learn and work mm. before because i'm a big perfectionist like i've calmed down but basically saying if if vaping stops someone from smoking, good. Vaping is way less dangerous than smoking. It's like something like 95% safer. And that's like a that's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so I worry about uh, laws that are harder on vapes than they are on uh, cigarettes. That's silly to me. Or um, even with heroin and stuff, just making sure that we're, we're helping people get off of it and that we're giving them the best chance and that our strategies are focused on that, not always going cold turkey. Or, um, you know, birth control is a, a form of harm reduction. Seatbelts, like all these things are harm reduction. And making sure at the very least that they're legal, that you can do something less dangerous. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I hike, I hike with bear spray because I'm I'll still get eaten by a bear. It's possible. But the bear spray helps me not get eaten by a bear. Like this is all harm reduction and it's all how we should think about it. Not not the control stuff. Like you're saying, it's you know, we it's not we're not going to succeed if we're like, oh, do exactly this. Never do this. Never go anywhere near this it's, it's silly and it's just not how life works right and i love that you brought up seatbelts because one of my favorite statistics i don't remember the actual numbers on it uh anymore but uh so new hampshire doesn't have seatbelt laws uh it's completely legal to drive around without a seatbelt uh but they actually have uh a higher seatbelt wearing average i don't remember how they phrased the, the data than the national average uh, even though it's not yeah. mandatory, you're not going to get pulled over for not doing it. Uh, it's still more people wear their seatbelts in New Hampshire than nationally. Uh, and I loved being there because like, I was doing I was there for political work for about yeah. four months last year. And when you're door knocking and you're driving like 10 yards at a time, I'm mm -hmm. not putting my seatbelt on. Yeah. Uh, or if I'm just like running crazy amounts of errands where I'm going to get out of my car like 30 times sure. in the next three hours, I'm I'd like, just leave me alone. And it's great to not have to like have that terrifying fear while you're driving yeah. those hundred yards of like, if a cop happens to drive by me at this yeah. second, then everything's screwed. I'm driving my boss's car. Maybe the, I don't know where the registration is. Like this is going to be a whole problem just because I didn't put on my seatbelt. Uh, but again, like most people still wear it because it's sensible. It saves your life. If you get into a car accident, yeah. everyone understands that. And most people are either uh, just dumb and not wearing it or they're something like what I'm talking about, where it's like a very specific scenario where you don't really need it. You're not going to go over 20 miles an hour. Right, right. So the airbag will do enough. Uh, but yeah, I I think that that kind of mentality also applies to like occupational licensing where oh, yeah. uh, just because the law says a thing doesn't mean that people are following that law more. 
Right. You know, we could have less regulation and better professionals in that profession. And I think a lot of people yeah. don't see that that as a possibility. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it's it's in the same way, and this is kind of a negative way, but it's in the same way that there's no law saying people have to go to college, but a lot of them still do because they think it's worth it. They're wrong in many cases, but they think it's worth it or business is required or stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But there's still, you know, it, and credentialism, it's kind of its own problem, but there's incentives beyond government. And I'm open, you know, I'm, I'm always open to stuff. I'm also open to different incentives. I'm, I'm open to government regulation, even where I don't always love it. Um, but it really, we do have to think beyond regulation incentives. I'm actually working with the Sloth Institute now to kind of discourage people from buying sloths. Trust me, I would love to own a sloth, especially a three-toed sloth. They were perfect angels, but they're, they're very delicate. Like they, um, I've watched documentaries about overactive sloths and it's actually a problem because their metabolism is so, so low that, oh, that over, overactivity can really harm them. It's kind of like, you know, running yourself ragged for days on end, like you, your body can, you go, you'll get, you're um, more susceptible to infection, stuff like that, mm -hmm. if it's not what you're feeling. Um, people, and they also have very, very delicate stomachs, especially the three-toed sloths. So people are importing them and like, they don't know how to care for them. Vets don't have training in, in sloths. Like the vets don't know how to care for sloths and I wouldn't expect them to, and that there's real risks. So I was talking with them and I'm like, look, I want to decrease the demand because there, there's government action that can happen. But I think, you know, mo most importantly, you need to decrease the demand and realize like, you know, people can do sloth encounters that are really unethical and they don't know. But if they know, we don't need any government action to for them to be like, oh, my gosh, this poor thing. They pulled it from the wild. It's not doing well. It's it's doing too many encounters a day or a baby sloth. Why are you allowed around a baby sloth? That's very like more delicate than even adult sloth. So having people understand that um, is, is better than government action in a lot of cases because people can get through. You can still find ways or you know, you can get special permits and still get the sloth and not care for it, right? So mm -hmm. there's other incentives. And one of them is understanding the real consequences of your actions and saying, you know, you, you think this is a cute animal, but like, if you care about it, you don't want that animal to be hurt. So it's funny because I, I talk about this a lot where you just have to figure out the right incentives um, and what can and can't be fixed and, and where and it can and can't be fixed. Yeah. And although I agree with you that uh, for the most part, the, the college thing that you were mentioning earlier is is wrong. Uh, I think it, it uh, touches on a another really important avenue that we have, which is like societal regulation yeah. of like, you know, most people go to college because their parents told them to. Right. Uh, you know, and or their guidance counselor did or or whatever. But more often than not, it's just direct parental influence. Yeah. Uh, but then if you're lacking that, you know, societal usually pick up the slack and pressure everyone into going to college. Right. Unless you're like really adamant about not doing it. Uh, I don't know. I almost all of my friends have at least done a semester or two. Sure. I, I dropped out after a semester, but I, understand. I, I still <laughs> I still made the mistake of going in the first place. I still have twenty something thousand dollars in debt because it's an expensive ass school that I don't know why I went to. Um, but th I think that applies to 
almost everything you know like if you have strong parental and then societal influence backing that up you're not going to you know cut people's scalps off as a hairdresser right. uh because that would right. be rude that's I mean, not like a nice people thing get jobs people there's no regulation you have to have a job but like be, you know you, you get mm -hmm. a job like you realize that's part of society or like you take a bath most people are pretty good about that kind of stuff because they're like you know there's norms and stuff and norms are often good you know stuff yeah. like that yeah, I think I think we could we could definitely improve on the the average shower taking in society. But sure. <laughs> yeah, there's I've I've had I've been around some smelly people, and I'm like, come on, this isn't hard. Like, mm -hmm. come on, guys. Yeah, I spent uh, way too much of my life working with uh, with the with uh, like fourteen to eighteen year old boys, and they I would swear they're allergic to showering or putting on deodorant. <laughs> It's funny. I know some people can do that, but for me, like, I just, I'm so gross. If I don't shower every day, like I feel it. And when I'm camping, sometimes I don't get to, and I just, even one, even like 12 hours extra without the shower, I feel that it's awful. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, but I think even that, you know, most people as they, like, even those boys that f acted like they were allergic to it, you know, were pressured into it. Uh, yeah. eventually, you know, you get a girlfriend for the first time and then she complains that your your breath stinks or something. You're like, oh, maybe I should actually like brush my teeth more often. Right. Or like uh, change my sheets more than once a year. And, yeah. and then, you know, you grow and you learn and the government's not necessary. We don't need a right. uh, mandatory toothbrushing law as Vermin Supreme wants. That's really funny. But yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. And it's, it's you know, we can encourage stuff. I don't even mind government encouraging certain things, but there's so many other incentives. Like with cybersecurity, we still suck on that. And I kind of wish we would teach that in schools and teach people how to evolve in cybersecurity and how to look out for the next threats and protect themselves. But like people who understand it are like, oh, I know how to protect myself. I'm going to get a password manager or I'll do this or that or kind of monitor stuff, get better passwords, you know. Mm -hmm. There's so many kinds of norms that we have that like, you know, as they grow and, and evolve and as needs come up, we kind of work through them. Like society, you know, it's it's kind of spontaneous order. My friend Neil Chilton has a book on that that he just released. And um, I started reading it and it's about kind of like how stuff works out. Like, you know, be frightened and whatever, but generally things tend to work out. And he explains why. And it's kind of funny to think through because you'll realize like, oh, wait, yeah, that did kind of work out. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh so I, I have one more one more question um, for the people that uh, are interested in similar things to you or, you know, interested in policy or writing. Uh, what advice would you give them to try to, you know, find that the similar career path to what you did and maybe find that dream job they didn't know existed? So I uh, people I, I had a really terrible mentor once tell me to pick something and stick with it. That's not true. Um, figure out what you like. Like, you know, the a common path is where people go to college, start interning at think tanks and stuff like that, or at other organizations they might want to work at. But honestly, if you want to do policy, a think tank is the place to go. And also Congress, so you can understand how stuff functionally works, um, or any level of government, depending on what you're interested in. But um, figure out what you like. You might start and be like, oh my gosh, I can't do policy. This is so stupid. I hate this. Or like, oh crap, I thought I liked this area of policy. I don't at all. 
So just keep narrowing down what you like, figure out the path that works for you. Um, and don't be afraid to learn that what you thought isn't what you want to do. Um, a lot of people want to do stuff and realize what the job is and don't want to do it then. So just start figuring out what you like and take internships and jobs, entry-level jobs at places. Network as best you can, especially if you're in D.C. You know, try to make friends with people at Think Tanks, go to Think Tanks in person events, talk to scholars and just say, you know, tell them why you like their work, that what about their work you like. They really appreciate that and they'll want to stay in touch. Um, on Twitter, you can really reach out to people, ask them questions and be mm -hmm. humble. And if you do all of that, you're in a really good spot. Um, I'm the only digital media manager who also does policy. Like there's no other me and I love it. But um, it's it's a really rare thing to do. But if you want to do it, you can make your path there. Um, it just takes time to, to show people, hey, I know this and I know this or I know this and I know some of this. Let me try the rest. Mm -hmm. um, but really, it's just about uh, being really active. Don't spend a semester not interning. Don't do clubs mm -hmm. at school over interning or working. Uh, work always should come before that. If you want to be a lawyer, it might be a little different because law school is just stupid and not and that's a whole nother beast but really um you know you can work yourself up to wherever you want to go it's just about finding the people who have the job you think you want learning from them and then getting closer to there and you might drift off in a different direction and that's totally okay but you know be not being afraid of like oh this isn't what i want to do but in the meantime pursuing it as hard you, as you can mm -hmm. uh do you if someone doesn't live anywhere as near DC or, or a bigger city, cause I like me uh, living in New York city for a while, I still have a pretty decent amount of access to organizations and yeah. politics and stuff like that. But a lot of people, especially the kind of people that watch this show uh, live in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. Yeah. Uh, how, how would you suggest uh, getting involved there? If you don't, if maybe you can't, actually meet people, I know you said Twitter, but uh, yeah. is there something a little bit more active? Um, think, think tanks, um, local organizations of all kinds. You know, if you're interested in environmental policy, you might find environment-based groups in your area. Or, um, you know, there's the state policy network will list all the different state think tanks um, that are affiliated with them. And all of them are worth, you know, exploring. You might think that you're not close enough to stuff, and then you might realize you're just half an hour away from one, like intern there talk with them, go to their events, um, become close with them. Most of them are going to be really down to earth and um, it'll be a great learning experience. But then, um, you know, intern in uh, congressional offices back in their district office or Senate offices in the district office. There's tons of opportunity. Um, it's very rare that you won't be within driving distance of like one of these kinds of places. And then, you know, and I know it's hard, especially when it's unpaid internships, but if you can stay with a family friend and intern somewhere that you really want to, you know, figure out your paths there, find cheaper housing, find grants for housing, you can do all that stuff. It's just, and I, I realize it's a pain, but, um, even the Heritage Foundation, for instance, offers intern housing, and I think it's for free. So some places really make it easier. The Leadership Institute does that as well, and I think mm. there's some others that do. But just exploring your options, and if you're, you know, if you have a family that's able to support you to go somewhere and intern, definitely do that. Um, but you know, just keep working as hard as you can, and um, and taking every opportunity you're able to. And if you don't have as much opportunity as some people, you can still, if you're working harder than everyone, you're still going to make it better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned that there's there's like more organizations than people realize. And I, I found that one out uh, this year, especially someone tasked me with creating a spreadsheet of 
a bunch of different uh, like nonprofits in a specific sector. And I was like, uh, it was drug policy and then a couple of other things. And I was like, oh, so we got like normal and, and MPP. Yeah. And there, there's only like four or five like drug decriminalization right. organizations. Right. And then I started looking at stuff and I'm like, there are a thousand different yeah. Just marijuana organizations. And then you'd start to dip into like the ones that want yeah. to legalize all drugs, or the ones that like focus on psychedelics. Yeah. You're talking just so many organizations across the country that yeah. yeah, the likelihood of you being in driving distance of an office of one of them is highly likely. Oh yeah, I mean even in Utah, there's Libertas, which is um, in Salt Lake, and then there's a uh, CGO, which is just north of it. Um, Center for Growth and Opportunity. They're awesome. And then there's all different ones all over. Like, I think, sorry, I think CGO is Logan. I always forget the city names. I love the Wasatch, though. I'm obsessed with Utah. But there's places all over. And, you know, you might have family, like, let's say you're in Arizona and you live in Flagstaff. I'm not sure if there's anything there. But if you, if you have family in Phoenix and, and they, you know, you can stay with them while you intern at the Goldwater Institute, like, that's a great opportunity. Um, it's sometimes it's a little bit of bootstrapping. If, you know, not and I don't I hope it doesn't sound latest because I realize that not everyone has the ability to, to do unpaid internships, but there are also paid internships and it's just about finding those. But if you come to DC, housing is a pain. Um, so finding uh places that offer intern housing is always very nice, or places that have grants or stuff like that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh yeah, there is definitely that um that kind of like class divide uh for a lot of people and and unfortunately i've it, just across the board with politics it seems to be like the worse you are the higher you get compensated for your work <laughs> politics <laughs> well, is just such a weird world and it's so insular and it's so like there's a lot of nepotism and that causes a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, especially being uh, active in the libertarian party for a while, like I've worked on duopoly campaigns that have paid me quite well. And I've, then I volunteer for libertarian candidates, you know, like the people that I actually believe in, yeah. like none of them have the money to actually pay me for the work. And similarly with a lot of these organizations, they're all like, broke as hell because yeah. they're out here fighting the good fight and then you have uh you know you could go work for for biden's re-election campaign i'm sure they'll pay like real nice i'm not sure it's a good it's actually a good question because i'm not sure how presidential campaigns pay i know the pay scale for a lot of other campaigns but for presidentials i'm actually not sure what the what it generally is it's funny because i was talking about this with a friend earlier today too um, I've only interned on presidentials and it was fun um, and I was paid nothing, <laughs> but um, for, for staff, I'm not totally sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've only been like, uh, like grunt level work for uh, at least paid presidential staff. Yeah. Um, so I actually, last year I worked for a short amount of time on both Trump and Biden's campaigns. That's really funny. Doors, um, in, in South and then North Carolina. And honestly, the the Biden the I was working for Vote Blue, which is like a workers' rights pack yeah. that endorsed Biden in uh, North Carolina. And so I was working for them, and that was actually the best job I've ever had. Really? Like as far as as far as like treating their employees well, better than any That's of my great. previous experience in in finance or business or retail, like any of my jobs. They literally fired me and then still bought my plane ticket home. 
Like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. I've yeah, never heard of that. They were they were so awesome. They paid well. They covered our our hotel. They got me a rental car, like everything. Um, and so yeah, I've but that was still like pack work uh, as as a door sure. knocker not actually like campaign staff. The only the only presidential campaign I've been on the staff for was Tulsi Gabbard and she had no money and didn't pay me anything. That's really funny. <laughs> they housed us and fed us, but there was no paychecks there. Oh, at least they housed and fed you. That that's that's something. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh but again, it seems like, you know, the better work you're doing, the less money that you have when it comes to politics. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Like, I haven't had campaigns in years, thankfully. It, they mm -hmm. ruined me out. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm I'm taking a break, or I was I was going to take a break, and I just took a fundraising director job on a campaign. But that one's actually oh, yeah. a paid gig, uh, so so that's great. Um, that's awesome. But other than that one, uh, thank you. Um, other than that one, I'm definitely t uh, taking a break from the actual like uh, campaign side of politics because yeah. like candidates are awesome, and like getting people into office can do a lot, but most of most of the governmental structure, I think, is a little too messed up, and uh, the like either direct activism or like policy work uh, is is more my my stride now because like we it would take uh, especially like here in New York it would take at least fifty or sixty victories in the state legislature to actually like do any good in the state of New York. And we're not gonna get 60 victories in the state legislature for the Libertarian Party anytime soon. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, Tom, if you're still watching this. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I also, I've seen a lot of people kind of pigeonhole themselves into yeah. the political process of, um, you know, thinking that it's it's all about either campaigns or, um, like party affiliation stuff uh, when like, I, a bunch of people that I know don't even know really any of the good Liberty think tanks that are out there. I talk about like the 10th amendment center a lot and they're awesome. And most of my, or a good chunk of my friends have never heard of them. Actually yeah. uh, having Michael Bolden on the show next week. And I, was like over the moon excited uh, to finally like get to talk to him. Yeah. And so many of my friends are like, who's that? And it, it makes me so sad. It's I like, know. you know, these like random like gubernatorial candidates that got like 2% last year or whatever. Uh, everyone knows their names, but yeah. these people who are out there like actively making people's lives better every single day, uh, we don't pay attention to them. And yeah. I, I really want to, that's one of the things that I want to try to do with this show is kind of open, open up the people that are way too concerned about electoral politics to the idea of like, you know, you can go work for a, a think tank, you can go work for a nonprofit organization or an institute or, uh, you know, so many other things besides just like knocking doors for a campaign. Yeah. There's all different kinds of sides, even working within government for a bad person. You can actually do that and change their mind and help them not suck so much. There's people I know who work for members who I'm like, ah, but it's like they're there doing really good work to make the member better. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you can be a voice of reason yeah. to someone who actually has power. You know, I know like Rand Paul got a lot of crap for being as close to Trump as he was, but... I think it's undeniable that he had positive influence yeah. there. And 
possibly like single-handedly avoided a war with Iran because <laughs> of his like constant uh, nagging of Trump. That's like, funny. You can't you can't deny that he had a lot of influence there and. So maybe being a suck up isn't always the worst yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff to consider and it's about what you're able to do, where your competitive advantage is. And, um, and you know, there's nothing wrong with working for a bad official if you can make them better on stuff. It really does matter. Um, people, get, you know, hate people who are working for the Trump administration. I'm like, well, it depends what they were doing. If they were just doing whatever Trump wanted, yeah, that's not great. But if they were actually changing his mind or you know, executing things better. That's, that's something that matters. Mm -hmm. And changing his mind didn't seem to be like too difficult of a yeah, task. Yeah, it's very easy to do. Shockingly, <laughs> disturbingly easy. I guess like it worked out well in some cases, but it's not great. Yeah. Yeah. Someone like that. Um, I think that getting close to them can, can only be a benefit when yeah. they're that susceptible to stuff. And honestly, like most people, at least in my experience, I haven't met a crazy amount of politicians, but probably more than the average person. Uh, in my experience, most of them are kind of like people pleaser types in a lot of ways where they are susceptible to that kind of uh, not, I don't want to say coercion, but just like, you know, uh, influence. influence. Thank you. That's a better word. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I a hundred percent agree that, yeah, even if you don't like your congressman, look up and see if he's hiring because you might be able to help yeah. out the people in your area. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, um, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, before we go, uh, tell people how they can find you, find your stuff, get involved with our street, get involved with uh, helping out sloths. <laughs> Sure. So um, the Sloth Institute does great work. If you have the money, I would definitely advocate uh, sending them some money. They, they do really good sloth work. Um, and I love sloths. Um, uh, follow me at Senator Shoshana on Twitter, rstreet at rsi, um, rstreet.org. I don't have my own website. I have a Medium page because I'm not going to pay to have a website for something I can put on a Medium page. I'm very practical, um, disturbingly yeah. so maybe. Um, and yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Uh, guys, thank you so much for watching. Uh, we will be back here next week. Um, actually, next week is packed. We've got Michael Bolden uh, from the 10th Amendment Center, Clint Russell from Liberty Lockdown, uh, Joel Getz, who just ran for mayor of East Stroudsburg in Pennsylvania to come on and talk about his race. Um, there's one more next week that I'm spacing on. Uh, Killian Hobbs from Being Libertarian. So uh, definitely, if you haven't already, click the subscribe button, like this video, share it, go tell all of your friends that they need to do more work outside of uh, electoral politics. Uh, Shoshana, again, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, guys, have a good night. And uh, again, we'll see you back here next week. Until then, keep up the fight. <laughs>